Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. I'm studying medical engineering third year. It hasn't evolved much. It hasn't had much to offer. It's still, it's still growing. So I, I, I don't know. It's, there's still much room for improvement. I just feel like there's notes uploaded and there's there for people to get them and study. But there could be more that could be that could be done. I haven't seen any what do they call it, any program or course that's offered online and the structure and everything, if it's worth it or if it's fruitful or productive. So yeah, I'm yet to, to have a view if I would do it or not, because I don't know what's 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 happening with it or I'd like to do one or two there. Especially the I saw some some something in business or in in management. So I wanna take that uh take that on. But yeah, we'll have to see how it goes. In today's episode, we think about the potential of online learning for higher education in Africa. Our guest is Dr. Deirdre Karabine, Director of Programs and Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Academic Affairs for the Virtual University of Uganda. Deirdre studied in Belfast, Paris, Munich, and Dublin, and is the holder of not one, but two PhDs. She moved to Uganda in 1993, where she worked at Uganda Martyrs University. She became a deputy vice chancellor for academic affairs and also headed up the Institute of Ethics and Development Studies and then the School of Postgraduate Studies. She then founded the International Health Sciences University before moving on to become a founder of the Virtual University of Uganda. She is passionate about online learning and has overall responsibility to ensure that all the teaching and learning materials that the virtual university offer are of the best possible quality. She's also the chief editor for the Virtual University of Uganda's Open Access Resource Series. Warm welcome to Professor Deirdre Karabine, who is a key player in the Virtual University of Uganda. Thank you for joining us, Deirdre. You're welcome, Meita. I'm very glad to be with you today. Thank you. Perhaps you could start the discussion by giving us an introduction to the Virtual University of Uganda. How did it get established? What was its aim? And, and how does it fit into the higher education landscape in Uganda at the moment? Okay, that's a three-pronged question, but let me try and be as concise as possible. Um, Virtual University of Uganda was literally my my baby. Way back in the early 2000s, I had this urgent or burning desire to do something more than standing in front of a classroom with my notes because I was involved in, in paper-based distance learning at the time. And I thought there's got to be something more. We've got to be able to give them video. We've got to be able to give them audio and etc. And it was only gradually as I eased myself out of my previous position that I began to see that setting up an online only university in Uganda would actually be a reality. 
or could be a reality because of one particular thing. And that was, you know, the little dongle based devices that we attach to our computers to get online. Mm-hmm. MTN had them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things were the key because it meant that people could literally connect everywhere and not just in the office, in the African context. So that was a great step forward for us. So we decided to take the plunge. And in 2011, we were licensed by the regulatory authority. And I have to say that it's not always been an easy ride with them because they have a kind of mentality that is solely concerned with a brick and mortar institution. So anything that's online and the fact that we are called Virtual University of Uganda doesn't help. But anything that's online for them is somehow too nebulous to be, you know, controlled. Uh, how many classrooms have you? How many seats have you, et cetera, et cetera. But we're gradually working with them and we are gradually beginning to um, come to a close relationship and that we are assisting them also to develop their guidelines for e-learning and m-learning but it has been a very long and uh, quite a an arduous struggle at times so we set up in 2011 took in our first students in 2012 we offer four key programs with a few specializations everything is totally online we use a moodle platform which is the open source version of blackboard we are totally cloud-based So we have no servers on campus, so we're not worried about power cuts or whatever. We uh, use all the technology that we can find out there, including wikis for administrative purposes, so we don't have paper, etc., etc. We are also open source, and we're proud to be both those things because I think we are the only tertiary institution in Africa that's totally cloud-based and open source, which is uh, a feat. Okay, so to clarify, for those of us who may still be stuck in the idea of a university as a place, a physical place that students and teachers congregate in um, and talk and Mm -hmm. have to be in one another's presence in order to learn. So the virtual university is something completely different. There is no brick and mortar campus. There are no classrooms. There are no blackboards. So everything takes place online. Yep. So could you talk us through what a student's experience would be? Um, you mentioned that you have four programs. So, so what are the programs that students can sign up to? And what is their day-to-day experience of learning and education? We're postgraduate only for a very important reason, and that is that we believe that younger people leaving school don't have the skills or the the capacity to be self-regulated learners, nor do they have the infrastructure, etc. So we're postgrad only. We offer public health, which is an extremely important one for developing uh, so-called country. We offer international development. We offer an executive MBA, for um, people in business fields who wish to update their information. And we offer the, I think it's the only full Master of Science in ICT for Development 
on the continent. I know there's some diplomas and so on. And we have oil and gas specialization as well for the EMBA. And we're putting up soon hospitality management and health services management as well. Well, the programs are basically geared towards the needs of the country today. Now, while we are called, I have to say this, the virtual university of Uganda, our little tag is the online university for Africa. We just happen to be in Uganda. We have an administration building, a very beautiful one in a suburb of Kampala. We have five full-time admin staff. That includes the vice chancellor and myself as director of programs. And we have roughly about 65 students at the moment doing courses and another 10 to 12 completing their dissertations for masters. So a student experience would be they log on every week to our platform and they find their course. We call the classrooms are actually online. So when you click on your classroom, instead of opening the door to enter, you click your mouse, you enter into your classroom and all your course materials are provided for you there. So you have lecture notes, you have group discussions, you have wikis, which are shared web spaces where you can work with your fellow students. And most importantly, we have chats, which are synchronous or asynchronous. So you can start a chat and come back and see who else has joined in, or it can be in real time, or you can chat with your fellow students. And most importantly, we have live classes, which is a software called WizIQ, which is a Moodle plugin. So you, you click to enter your live class and voila, you're in the classroom either in full video or audio only, which we tend to use with your, your teacher and your fellow students. And we call this, well, it's actually called a flipped classroom approach. In other words, instead of a teacher spending time reading out lecture notes to a class, the lecture notes are put online with other things, of course, video, audio, podcasts, etc., etc., to make it a, a nice experience for the students. And the students come into the live classroom once a week and they benefit from the teachers guiding their discussion. So that's a flipped classroom approach. So that would be the typical student experience. Your assignments are there. You submit your assignments online and you get your feedback online. Your teachers are online synchronously for specific times each week. So it works basically the same as a full-time course on campus, except that you're looking at the screen rather looking at the teacher and your, your fellow colleagues in the classroom. Does that help? Yes, absolutely. So you've got about 65 to 70 postgraduate students, if, if I heard yep. you correctly. How many staff members do you have involved in the education in the programs, delivering and facilitating the degrees? Well, at the moment, uh, we have no full-time academic staff for the simple reason that we offer programs rather than having faculties with departments and so on. So we have roughly 24 academics from all over the world who are with us in an adjunct or visiting professor capacity. We've got staff from England, Ireland, my own country, of course, Scotland, Belgium, Holland, India, 
Tanzania, Cameroon, uh, Uganda, and other places I'm sure I've left some out. But the advantage of being online is that we can get sympathetic staff from all over the world to teach the classes. We don't have to rely on the small and growing smaller pool of academics trained in Uganda or in the East Africa region. That's an advantage. Absolutely. That sounds very exciting for the students to have access to such a cosmopolitan staff body. And what is the profile of your your students? That's a very interesting question because we have been discussing that ourselves recently in view of targeting and marketing. What we have found, mate, is that the, the students who choose the virtual approach are generally extrovert types. They are also strongly forward-looking. They use technology already in their life, uh, in their work, and are generally stable, married, have done their first degree maybe 10 years in the past. So we're talking about early 30s, 35, 30, 35, that kind of age group. So we're not talking about the university lever of 22, 23. We're talking about definitely the older person who is confident, who has learned a little bit more from life than just through the the rote learning that we get at, usually get at university. That's quite interesting to me because it sounds like the profile of your student body is, like you say, a slightly more mature and more established postgraduate student. And this makes me wonder about the importance of having access to the internet. Um, as you mentioned, we've seen a, a rise in the accessibility of internet through mobile phone related technologies. But at the same time, I think we could argue that there's still a huge digital divide in most African societies and cultures where just getting online is difficult, it's expensive, the cost of data is often very prohibitive. And I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of what kinds of possibilities and challenges exist in terms of the rollout of internet access in Africa and how that might impact on the potentials for virtual and online learning at the higher education Mm -hmm. level? Interesting question again. In terms of the rollout of internet, certainly it guaranteed access to more people. And at the start, in I can speak from the Uganda or East African experience, most people got online on the back of their employer. I think it took some time before people had their own internet connections with the little dongles and the professionals were certainly the first ones to do this as the demands of work meant that they had to be online after hours and so on and so forth. But I think now there's been a change. And let me explain why I think that. There's a statistic going around in Uganda. I'm not sure if it's actually true or not. There are more phones in Uganda than light bulbs. Now, if we can believe that, I'm not sure, but I could quite well believe that there are more phones than light bulbs. Now, one of the things that aids internet access is um, the smartphone and buying a data package. Now, most people, when you buy, I'm sure it's the same for you, when you buy a data package, you get so many gigas free, you get so many minutes of call, you get so many this, you get a whole package with some freebies thrown in. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so when you buy the package, you've got some free stuff. Most of our professionals who are actually taking their master's on a package like that, 
whereby they mostly use it on their phone, which is interesting. <clears throat> so we're not necessarily talking about e-learning anymore specifically, but maybe also m-learning. I'd like to tell a little story just to illustrate that. A couple of months ago, we had an exam in the ICT for Development course, and one of our students is based in Nairobi, and the office was sending him to Mombasa for a meeting the next day, and he had to present his proposal, his practical, and then he apologized and had to leave the class, in inverted commas. So we all said goodbye, and he was on the way to the airport. Well, lo and behold, 10 minutes later, our student comes back online and says, hello, I'm in the taxi on the way to the airport. I thought I would just connect and get the last bit of the class. So for us, that really is learning on the go. We are no longer talking about desktops. We're not talking about connected via a modem or anything else. We're talking about Wi-Fi anywhere. We're talking about smartphones and we're talking about smartphones that are capable of enabling the student to get online and even to type an assignment online. Some have told me they're actually doing it on their smartphone rather than on their desktop or their laptop. I find that wonderful. That is very interesting. And it certainly does, as you say, broaden the possibilities for participation. Mm -hmm. In, in educational programs. But it does make me wonder a little bit about, from a pedagogical perspective, about the possibility of, of concentrating, about the idea that one can learn or engage in learning activities anywhere at any time. And, and is that really possible? I mean, are we able to multitask quite to that extent where we're able to fully engage with and really get into the complexities of certain ideas and topics while we're doing several other things at the same time. I have two points to make with regard to that issue. First of all, when we look at young people today, when we look at most people today, whether they're looking for Pokemon Go's or whatever, most people are walking on the street with their head in their smartphone. Yeah, it's true. So they can walk off a footpath into traffic and they're texting away or whatever, oblivious to their circumstance. And most young people today, my own family included, my nieces, nephews, the whole lot of them, they can be sitting in the room with everybody having a great big party and they're just sitting there totally concentrated on the smartphone with the two thumbs going away. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is an experiment was done in the United States a few years ago whereby an academic guy gave a class in situ with students, and that class was video recorded and put projected for the, a group of students in the next room. They did an exam after the lecture was complete, and I think we know which group did best in the exam. The group that was uh, focused on the screen rather than the actual person? Exactly. Good guess. <laughs> it's, it says something about the way we humans, even though there's external noise everywhere, we can be watching a video, we can be watching something on our computer, and we don't hear someone come into the room and say, would you like a cup of tea? You know, so I think actually the way young people are learning today, the way I see my family learning and the young people in, in my family and around me, 
the way I see them learning when they pop onto their smartphone to to check something out is just totally different from an older person's conception of what university is, what learning is, etc., etc. It's just totally breaking our 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 mindsets. Technology is changing the way we think, but it's not only changing the way we think about education and how we learn, it's changing what we learn. Now, this is a really interesting point, because when you think of it, we have Encyclopedia Britannica on our smartphone, so we no longer need to know facts, as it were. We can check a fact anytime. When I want a recipe, I don't have to write a letter to my mum in Ireland anymore. I go on Google. I check my recipe. I cook. That's it. When we need information, we've got it at literally our fingertips. So online learning changes the way we learn in that we are no longer standing in a classroom, reading our notes that we've read for a couple of years, perhaps. The students write them down. They learn them and they regurgitate them in an examination. Online learning demands a different kind of assessment of how well students have mastered the learning materials. For example, quite often in my course, I teach a number of courses, but quite often I would use a picture and ask the students to write a critical commentary on a picture. The last one I had was a picture of the globe at night where the lights can be seen from space in every single country, almost except the, the middle part of the whole way across Africa, apart from a little bit in Nairobi. So I asked them, please write a critical analysis of this picture. What are your thoughts? And some of the answers I got were absolutely wonderful because it brings in so much of what they've been thinking about and discussing in class, about the place of Africa in the world. It brings in international relations. It brings in access to power, to electricity grids, and so on and so forth. Inequality, third world, first world. Well, you've brought up some very interesting points about the generation of digital natives and how being online and interacting with technology is a kind of natural experience for them and, and the importance of integrating that into learning and into pedagogical strategies. I think that's very convincing. The thing that pops to mind is that all of these very exciting possibilities about learning with and through technology, rather than or perhaps even in addition to the classroom space, is the question of, you know, does that mean that the kind of virtual environment that your university is providing is one that really serves the elites, those who have access to the smartphones, the tablets, the laptops, the stable internet connections. What about those who are desperate for and in great need of social development through education who don't have access to those resources? How might technology assist them? Let me say that maybe I've painted a very rosy picture of the, the, the students at this institution at Virtual University of Uganda. While most of them are professionals who are in stable jobs, some are not particularly stable and not in a full-time position and have to beg, borrow or steal an internet connection, for example, for a live class. Some of them do go to internet cafes because we can hear the ambient noise. Some of them stay at work and use their employer's bandwidth 
So it's not for the total elite. But I get your point. Mobile learning and e-learning should be able to provide access to those who are non-elites and who are in most need of education in order to lift themselves out of poverty. And I think that e-learning does present an opportunity for this, but not precisely in the way that researchers and academics have been writing about. I think there is a software, I'm just going to give an example. Now, we're using Moodle, which demands a live connection. There is something called Poodle, which is offline Moodle, where you can put all your learning materials on a CD, for example, and you distribute those to people in areas where there is no connectivity, but of course you need a desktop. Most local councils or local libraries have at least two or three desktops. Now we're talking about very rural, remote areas of this country and and Kenya and, and so on, so that they can insert the disk and learn that way. Of course, the mixed mode is a very interesting one, and that has been used in many cases where, for example, if we were to set up an office space with five or six computers in a rural area where we know that uh, we have a number of students and we actually provide the connectivity, we have thought of this at diploma level, especially for health workers. Now, we're talking about health workers who maybe are earning a salary of $100 a month or maybe $300 a month. So if we're talking about providing them with skills to assist in a rural area, we're going to have to provide not only the pedagogy, but the means to access the pedagogy. And we're going to have to go there once every two, three months and give kind of live classes, as it were. Now, that's in our plan for the future, but we actually think that other universities are engaging in that kind of activity. So while it's in our plan, we are concentrating for the moment on online, and we don't make an excuse or a justification for being able to provide through online learning the answer to everybody's problem of access. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think it demands a sustained approach, not only in terms of private and public education providers, but also governments, NGOs, and so on and so forth, coming together to work with the education sector to plug those gaps. We don't see ourselves necessarily as being able to plug the gap of access, but I do believe that online education, if we provide places where younger people who want to maybe get even a primary degree, not a secondary degree, but want to start off from scratch, can go and can learn over, it's going to take through a five-year period. And that demands a lot of dedication on the part of the student and on the part of the education provider to sustain that for five years so that the student can come out with a degree at the end. I think you make some really important points about how there needs to be an integration of online and offline approaches, right? You know, if all the material is available digitally, it still somehow needs to get to those who need it. So we need the hardware infrastructure, the internet connections, even the spaces where young people can go and sit in front of a computer and engage with the necessary material. 
I was wondering about your thoughts about the possibility of online education for existing established kind of bricks and mortar institutions. I'm thinking about my university where there are about 20,000 students um, and we have, you know, quite a traditional system of, of education, although we do use many online tools to support and develop that. Your institution is quite small. You only have around 70 students. So I think it perhaps was in some ways easier to set it all up as online. But from mm-hmm. your perspective and in your experiences, how might the bigger, more well-established universities move towards online learning? Should they or shouldn't they? Yes, I definitely think they should. I read a number of reports recently generated in Australia by Australian academics where they guesstimated that 75% of the brick-and-mortar universities in the world will most likely disappear by 2050, 2070, something like that. And that learning online uh, or whatever will come in the future, because we're only at the beginning of this, we really don't know what technological advances are going to make a virtual reality like I don't know, like second life um, where you have a classroom there. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But yes, I do believe that every brick and mortar institution needs to engage with this methodology of the flipped classroom approach. Because first of all, I believe it's a waste of an academic's time to go into a classroom and simply deliver lecture notes. I realize that that's not the pedagogy used by many people in many countries, but in parts of the world, especially in developing countries, that is the pedagogy used, and that's a waste of time. I think it was much easier for us to be starting online only, as you've rightly observed. And one of our mission statement points in a virtual university of Uganda is precisely to share our knowledge so that we can assist brick and mortar institutions to come online. Well, let me tell you, that has been an uphill battle because vice chancellors see the necessity, university administrators see the advantages and the necessity. Academic staff do not want this for a number of reasons. Number one, if their course materials are online, other people can see them and they might be able to make a judgment as to how good or how bad they are. The vice chancellor might read them. Number two, if I put my materials online, then they may not need me as a full-time teacher. They might just get me to come in and do a discussion group, a tutorial once a week. I might lose my job. There's a huge, huge resistance in this country at least on the part of ordinary on-the-ground academic staff to take up the online learning challenge. I can understand some of those concerns because on the one hand, the promise of moving to online learning sounds like a whole lot of extra work that will get added onto existing heavy workloads. And on the other hand, as you say, it may lead to certain kinds of instability in in job security. So how would you respond to those worries and concerns that academic staff might have about the move to online learning? Well, basically, we've had a number of seminars here with them. And what I tell them is reinvent yourself. Reinvent yourself as a paper pusher to be a curator of knowledge. What's in your head is not sufficient any longer in today's world. What you learned is not sufficient 
for the student of tomorrow, for the student of today. I'm of an age bracket where I did sit in the classroom and take notes from a magisterial teaching approach and kind of re-gurgitate them back. Well, not quite, but you know what I mean. The students of today are very, very different because, number one, what's the first thing they do when they get an assignment? First thing they do is they go and they open a computer and they Google it. Academic staff are not Googling their own assignments. That's their downfall. And unless they Google their own assignments and see what's out there, what's been written this year, what's been a new theory, a new approach, students are going to be sitting in the classroom going, excuse me, sir, excuse me, madam, um, you know, um, what's going on here? So I think that I'm telling them to reinvent themselves because an online course if you're going to put your materials online, it's not simply a replication of your class notes that you would go in and read to your students or guidelines that you would talk to your students. I regard an online course, and I have built many of them for this platform, as a kind of a street. So there are certain things in the street that you have to do. You have to go across the bumps. You have to cross the zebra crossing. You have to go through the robot. You have to do a whole heap of stuff. But there are little doors always at the side of the street, additional readings or a YouTube video or Bill Gates on entrepreneurship or Richard Branson on entrepreneurship or whatever it is. Little doors that you can open and you can read more. So those little doors can be opened by the more discerning student. The student who just wants to make it to the end of the course will walk down the street do what is required of him or her, and that's it. But some of the courses that we have put online are, are so exciting. They've got YouTube videos. For example, if you're teaching a marketing course, everybody knows that Kirtler is the, a guy called Kirtler has written the 12th edition of his book, Fundamentals of Marketing, and that's the one everybody has to read for business admin as an undergrad. So instead of getting my lecture to introduce marketing, I went to YouTube and I found Kutler introducing marketing. There's a YouTube video of him telling the undergrad students of, of his university or wherever he was at the time, what is marketing? Marketing is. And he explains the whole thing. I'm telling lecturers to excel at being online teachers, excel at finding wonderful online materials that your students can use, you will get an absolutely wonderful review from your students at the course assessment. And there's no way faculty administration is going to chuck you out because you're gaining new skills. Yeah, I think that idea of being a curator of knowledge is very useful and perhaps very relevant to the work that we do both online and offline. Just a couple of final questions. So I understand that the Virtual University of Uganda is a private university. Yes. So does that mean that you charge fees? I mean, the reason I'm asking is because we are having very intense debates and discussions about whether public universities in South Africa can or should charge fees at the moment. So I'm wondering about the fee structure. And linked to that, I'm wondering also about the relationship of your university to the Ugandan government and the public education structures in the country. We do charge fees as a private institution. You're absolutely right. But we charge a minimal fee. There are 10 modules for a master's degree, and each one is 250 US dollars. 
So that's 2,500 US dollars for the, the courses and another $250 for the dissertation. So we are trying to keep the fees as low as possible so that they can be accessed by as many people as possible. Students are happy to pay that because in Uganda, there are 22 universities, I think, of those about six are public. Um, now, these may not be the exact figures, but it's something like that ratio. So most students who complete A-level are almost forced to go to a private institution because the state hasn't got the capacity to, to provide higher education for them. Most of the private universities are faith-based. I'd say probably one half of them are faith-based. And the others have been set up by entrepreneurial business people. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good, some of them are, are really excellent institutions. The church-based ones generally do have a good reputation because they are faith-based and therefore profit is not the doesn't come before pedagogy. In Uganda, we have a very, very good relationship with the, the government and the regulatory authority. They are becoming quite proud of the fact that they are the host country for the first online-only postgrad university in sub-Saharan Africa. I say they are becoming quite proud. It's a, it's a, it's a work in progress. Government has accepted us. We're fully regulated by government. We've jumped through all the hoops. We've passed all the tests, and we are a legal entity to offer degrees. And because they are accepted by the government of Uganda, in any country where degrees from Uganda are recognized, ours are also recognized. We have a student in Paris at the moment. We have an English student. We have a Filipino student. We have students from Namibia, uh, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Kenya, Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda, Sudan and South Sudan. So I think we are fast gaining recognition in the region, at least. And I think that's because we have a good relationship with government and with the regulatory authority. Fantastic. It's been really, really fascinating hearing all about the university and the online learning project that you guys are involved with. I wish you all the best for your, your future growth and development and contributions to education. Thank you very much, mate. It's been a pleasure for me to be able to explain it to a wider audience. And it also, when you talk, it helps clarify your own ideas. So thank you very much for the opportunity to have been with you. Our conversation today has touched on a number of topics, from the ways in which online learning is organized to the role that private online learning universities might have in public education systems. It's been fantastic to get some insight from the educational sector in Uganda, and we hope to explore more pan-African perspectives in future episodes. My name is Kilabuhile Mudise. I'm studying BA General, um, majoring in Psych. Um, virtual Varsity. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed that they, they're moving that fast. And I think it's a great idea. Honestly, I think it's a great idea. I'm, I'm, I'm a, what do you call it? A cheerleader for any form of growth. Whether I subscribe to it or not, whether I can handle that speed, it's not about me. I mean, I'm raising kids and I, I look at them and they kids of the future. I mean, 
my eight-year-old is already on a tablet. Um, my six-month-old is already on a tablet. You know, she's playing piano on tablets and just to see her fingers moving. So anything that is growth, I support, especially on that level, especially for Africans. I, I We need to get to a point where we can literally take over. And I've always said technology makes the world very small. So if we can actually access the world at that speed and it becoming that even smaller, then it's it's great. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Lembeyane. Thanks to Deirdre Carabine, Nteri Singh and Kili Bohile for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.